This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this podcast, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is The Renaissance, A History of Civilization in Italy from 1304 to 1576, The Story of Civilization, Volume 5. You may choose this or any other title when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash The Renaissance for your free download. Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance, episode 22, The School of Athens. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Bird. This episode will explore the work of Raphael. Like Bramante, we've encountered this artist before, as he worked just down the hall from the Sistine Ceiling in the Vatican Apartments. He was a favorite of Bramante and Pope Julius and a rival of Michelangelo. Despite their rivalry, both Michelangelo and Raphael grew to respect each other, Raphael would merge the styles of Michelangelo and Leonardo to create a new standard for Renaissance art and all others to follow. Unlike many of our earlier Renaissance masters, like Leonardo or Michelangelo, Raphael was the son of a painter. His father, Giovanni Santi, had been the court painter for the Duke of Urbino, Federico de Montefeltro. The Duke was originally one of the condottiere, or the mercenaries like Sir John Hawkwood, or Bartolomeo Colleoni, or even the Sforzas. Montefeltro was made a duke by the Pope and granted title to Urbino, one of the papal states. It was Raphael's father who first taught him the fundamentals of drawing and painting, as well as exposing him to humanistic thought. Giovanni would die when Raphael was only 11, leaving him to finish his apprenticeship with Evangelista di Pian di Meleto, a mediocre artist at best. Despite this, by the time Raphael was a teenager, he had become known as one of the best painters in Urbino. At 17, he would receive his first commission to paint the altarpiece for the Church of Sant'Augustina in Citta di Castello. Raphael's reputation spread, and Pietro Perugino invited Raphael to join his workshop in 1500. He would apprentice under Perugino for four years, as Perugino taught Raphael the technical aspects of fresco. Raphael was already a remarkable painter, and Perugino would have been able to use him for projects almost immediately. But Raphael needed the training in fresco that Perugino could provide. We have discussed in various episodes the difficulty of the medium of fresco, and the time spent with Perugino would give him the experience necessary to take on important commissions for wealthy patrons. It seems that Perugino brought Raphael in to help him with the Collegio del Cambio in Perugia. The two feuding families of Perugio, the Baglioni and the Odi, 
were a boon for artists, and in particular Raphael. He was soon commissioned to paint an altarpiece for the funerary chapel of the Odie clan, a chapel that contained 130 members of the family who were killed during their bloody feud with the Baglionis. Not to be outdone, the Baglioni family were soon eager to commission Raphael to paint an entombment for San Francesca. The piece was meant to be an atonement for a series of bloody murders committed by Griffinetto Baglioni, known as the Scarlet Wedding. The occasion was the wedding feast of Astore Baglioni and Lavinia Colonna. The couple was to stay in the palace of Griffinetto until their marriage home could be complete. After the festivities, all retired to bed. A storm arose, and during the thunderous tumult, Griffinetto and his accomplices struck murdering four members of the Baglioni family, including the groom, Astore. Their primary target, however, was Gian Paolo, the patriarch of the family. He escaped across the roof. Griffinetto's bid to take control of the family failed, however. Griffinetto's mother, Atalanta, disavowed his actions and refused to give him shelter when Gian Paolo returned at the head of an army. Desperate, Griffinetto returned to Perugia, where he was cornered and killed by Jean Paolo and his men. This incident wiped out much of Atalanta's family, though there continued to be strife with the Baglioni and the Odi, with the Baglioni eventually triumphing. Atalanta went into deep mourning, and it was just a few years later that she commissioned Raphael for the entombment. Perugia's rival claims and unruly nobles are probably not what Raphael had in mind for his career as an artist. He also wished to surround himself with more accomplished artists than Perugino, who represented an older style. Hearing of the contest between Michelangelo and Leonardo in the Sonoria, he made his way for Florence in 1504, the heart of the Italian Renaissance. Raphael used the connections of his father and uncle and asked the daughter of the Duke of Urbino to write him a letter of introduction to Piero Soderini, the Gonfalonieri of Florence. Raphael did not receive any commissions from Soderini directly, but his connections did help him gain many commissions from the notable citizens of Florence. It was during his four years in Florence that he would paint many of the Madonna and Child paintings for the leading families. Florence also allowed him the opportunity to study the works of Masaccio and Leonardo and Michelangelo directly, though both Leonardo and Michelangelo left by the time Raphael arrived. Using his connections with the Duke of Urbino again, a letter was sent to Soderini requesting that Raphael be given the opportunity to fresco a wall in the Sonoria. Raphael wanted a large commission like those of Michelangelo and Leonardo. It's possible that Raphael hoped to complete one of the two frescoes left uncompleted by Leonardo and Michelangelo. And despite his apprenticeship with Perugino, Raphael had not completed a fresco of his own. Soderini rebuffed Raphael's request. According to Ross King, Soderini was an ardent Florentine patriot and would never have allowed a foreigner to complete such an important work in the Sonoria. Few large commissions were to be had for Raphael and Florence. However, in 1508, Pope Julius began to take an interest in the young painter. It's uncertain if this was through the family of the Duke of Urbino, who was closely aligned to the Pope, or just as likely from the Pope's architect, Bramante. Both Bramante and Raphael hailed from Urbino, and according to Vasari, Raphael was actually related to Bermonti. Whether this is true or not, we can't be sure, but Bermonti was a tireless advocate for Raphael throughout his entire career. 
Raphael was invited to Rome by Julius in 1508 and quickly brought into Bermonti's inner circle. Through Bermonti's patronage, he would soon have the large commissions he longed for. Unlike Michelangelo, Raphael did not wait long in Rome before receiving a commission from the Pope. Almost immediately, he was given an assignment, frescoing the Vatican apartments. When Julius ascended to the papacy, he inherited it from his arch-rival and infamous villain of the Renaissance, Rodrigo Borgia, known as Pope Alexander. Despite Julius's reputation as Il Terriblita, or Julius the Terrible, Pope Alexander set a new low for the leadership of the church. In addition to his many public affairs and illegitimate children, he is also well known for the many murders he had carried out during his reign. His most common weapon, according to rumor, was poison. His daughter's husband was supposedly murdered by Pope Alexander, and we know this is one of the reasons why Savonarola refused to go to Rome. He didn't fear imprisonment as much as he feared he would be assassinated. When Julius took up residence in the Vatican, the papal apartments were covered in symbols of the Borgia Pope. This was too much for Julius to sleep under the symbols of the hated Borgia, and he moved out of the Vatican apartments until the walls could be painted. Raphael would begin by painting the dispute of the sacrament. After a year on the fresco, he would move across the room and begin one of his most famous works, the School of Athens. Julius wished to bring Rome into a new golden age and turn Rome into the new Athens, a place of learning and culture. The fresco would be below the muse of philosophy and depict the leaders of the two main philosophical schools of thought dominant in the Renaissance, Plato and Aristotle. Surrounding these two dominant figures are many, if not all, of the major Greek philosophers of antiquity. Some might find it strange to find this fresco honoring pagan Greek philosophers in the palace of the leader of Western Christianity, but one must remember that the ideas of Plato and Aristotle were not seen as conflicting with Christianity. In fact, as early as St. Augustine, Christian thinkers saw a compatibility between Aristotle and the teachings of Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church today is still essentially Aristotelian in its philosophical approach. The ideas of Plato came into vogue in the early Renaissance, and though were often at odds with some in the Church, such as Savonarola, most in the Renaissance were able to blend these Greek philosophies with their Christian faith. This is what Julius wished to be the hallmark of his reign. The center figures are of Plato and Aristotle. Raphael places them directly on the vanishing point so that the viewer cannot help but be drawn to them. The entire scene takes place in a structure that mirrors the interior of St. Peter's. This is before St. Peter's is actually complete, which leads one to suspect that Bramante had shown Raphael his plans for the basilica, and he may have even had a hand in the execution of the studies. In Raphael's studies, we only have the figures and not the architectural elements, meaning there is a second cartoon of the architecture. We're not able to, to identify the model for the figure of Aristotle, but many believe the figure of Plato to be Leonardo da Vinci. Raphael is, in a sense, paying tribute to the artist by casting him as one of the greatest Greek philosophers. The irony is that Plato dismissed the arts as a useless folly, though Raphael may be recognizing Leonardo's wide-ranging talents as an inventor and a scientist, as well as an artist. A bald-headed Euclid is depicted leaning over his tablets, and working on his theorems. The model for this philosopher is none other than his advocate and sponsor in Rome, Bermonti. 
he pays Bramante, an architect, a high honor by portraying him as the father of geometry. Raphael portrays himself as a student of Pythagoras, and he included another artist in the painting. It's as much as a jab as an honor. Michelangelo is portrayed as the brooding philosopher Heraclitus. The two rarely met, but when they did, they traded insults. One story has Michelangelo alone running into Raphael and his entourage just outside of St. Peter's. Michelangelo says to Raphael, You, with your band, like a bravo. Raphael responds, And you alone, like a hangman. The brooding Heraclitus certainly fits with Michelangelo's character, but we must also recognize that despite Michelangelo's sullen personality, Raphael does recognize his genius. In fact, from his first painting of the Disputation across the room to the School of Athens, we see Raphael's work change stylistically. He's adopted the more muscular and dramatic figures of Michelangelo. This is certainly evidence that Raphael did indeed view Michelangelo's work in the Sistine Chapel, just a few yards away. The School of Athens would cement Raphael's reputation as a master, and he would almost always be surrounded by a throng of admiring students. Raphael would eventually lead the largest workshop of the Renaissance, with over 50 pupils, according to Vasari. In 1511, Raphael began a portrait of Julius II. It's unusual in that it shows an aging and tired-looking Julius, but there's an intimacy with the subject that we don't often see, while at the same time he maintains many of the formal qualities befitting of the pontiff. Julius appears diminished and no longer the tyrant who scowled at Michelangelo and led armies into the field. Despite the fatigue of the Pope, Vasari would claim that it was such a lifelike appearance, it would scare visitors for years after his death. Raphael's portrait of Julius would set the standard for papal portraits for years to come. Compare the portrait of Julius to that of Leo X. Leo was elected Pope upon Julius' death in 1513, and Raphael would paint his portrait four years later. Raphael and Leo X were closer than he and Julius, and by all accounts, Leo was a much more amiable pontiff. We see in his portrait of Leo conflicting images of the Pope's power, but also his age. It is believed that this is meant to represent the conflict within the Church and the challenge of Luther in Northern Europe. Throughout Raphael's work, we see the image of a young woman. She's referred to as La Fornarina, which means the baker's daughter. The figure of La Fornarina appears time and time again. She is said to be Margarita Luti, the daughter of the baker and Trastevere. She most famously appears in a work entitled La Fornarina, where she appears bare-breasted. According to multiple sources, Raphael was often governed by his passions and would be absent from work for days, spending time with Margarita. Augustino Chigi had a novel solution to Raphael's truancy. He brought Margarita into the house where Raphael was to be working. This had the desired effect, and Raphael finished the frescoes for Chigi. According to Vasari and other biographers of the day, Margarita was the love of his life. Though this doesn't mean he didn't take other lovers, Raphael had quite a reputation for his lustful appetites. He even became engaged to another woman named Maria in 1514. However, he continued to postpone their nuptials, and the two were never married. Maria supposedly died of a broken heart. Upon Raphael's death, he bequeathed Margarita a large sum of money for her care and comfort. She then supposedly entered a convent where she remained for the rest of her life. 
There's a rumor that she and Raphael have been married in secret, and x-ray analysis reveals that she was originally wearing a ruby ring on her left ring finger in Raphael's portrait of her. It's believed the ring was painted out by Raphael's students after his death. The true nature of Raphael's death remains a mystery. According to Vasari, and repeated in, and repeated in Michelangelo's letters, Raphael died after a night of passionate lovemaking with one of his mistresses, most likely Margarita. Vasari describes it this way. Having indulged in more than his usual excess, he returned to his home with a violent fever. Modern historians tend to think he may have died of malaria or some other illness common in Rome, perhaps even a venereal disease he contracted from his many sexual escapades. According to Vasari, sensing he was dying, he sent his mistress away after making sure she would be secure financially and began writing a will dividing up his property amongst his students. He donated some of his wealth to building projects at various churches, and he made his final confession. After receiving last rites, he died on Good Friday, 1520, at the age of 37. His funeral was an impressive affair. His body was laid out with his painting of the Transfiguration hanging above it. Raphael's funeral was attended by most of Rome, and there was a magnificent procession as he was laid to rest in an ornate marble sarcophagus in the Parthenon. His epitaph reads, Here lies that famous Raphael, by whom nature feared to be conquered while he lived, and when he was dying, feared herself to die. Raphael, along with Michelangelo and Leonardo, would have a huge influence on future generations of artists. His large workshop ensured that his students would continue in his style for decades. They would be dispersed throughout Italy when the French sacked Rome in 1527, thus spreading Raphael's ideas throughout Italy and Europe. Raphael is unique because he combines the styles of Leonardo and Michelangelo seamlessly. Those who followed after Raphael and Michelangelo would eventually develop into the Mannerist, though their elongated figures are far from the classical ideals of both artists. Raphael would be the standard of high art for centuries, so much so that an English movement would develop in the 19th century in opposition to the style of Raphael, known as the Pre-Raphaelites. They sought to replicate a style of art that existed before Raphael dominated the scene and looked to artists like Botticelli and Piero della Francesca. In modern times, Raphael has lost some of the prestige his name once carried, and we tend to be more enamored with Michelangelo and Leonardo. This is likely due to the power of their work, but also their longevity, giving them a broader reach. But we forget that Raphael was once the pinnacle of Renaissance art and thought to equal or even surpass Michelangelo and Leonardo. Join me next time as we complete our series with the final works of Michelangelo, The Last Judgment and the Dome of St. Peter's.